You're listening to the Central City Assembly podcast. We're dedicated to sharing content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus for the good of our city and helps you grow in your love for Jesus. So enjoy this episode and may you be filled with the love of God the Father. Good morning and Merry Christmas to you, church family. I know it's not Christmas yet, but why not start saying it, right? How many of you have started saying hey, Merry Christmas to everybody? How many of you are foreign? You're like, Happy Christmas. That's a weird thing to say. No, maybe that's normal for most of the world. Anyways, Happy Holidays. Well, that's all right. We'll, uh, we'll pray for you. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, yeah, Christmas, God with us. Man, if, if that doesn't, like, strike your heart this season, remembering that, that Jesus came, that he is with us, um, putting, you know, not this spiritual idea, but as, as Luke said, that he came in flesh and blood and he's still with us um, even today. And I felt him this morning as we were worshiping. So just thank you, church family, for worshiping with us. Um, we are still in Hebrews. And so if you'd like, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Hebrews. Um, we are in our better series, and we've been in it for a while. Um, but I want to tell you that, that when I first moved to Tucson back in 2009, I was amazed by so many things. Um, I was amazed by the mountains because I didn't grow up seeing mountains back in Texas where I came from. Uh, I was amazed by how beautiful the dry desert could be. I was like, who knew? It's, it's amazing. Um, I, I was amazed by the sunsets. Oh my goodness, doesn't Tucson have the best sunsets? I was amazed by the weather. Maybe not so much the summer, but even the summers are bearable. But like spring and fall in Tucson, wow. Like if we should just go outside right now, it's amazing. Um, and I remember uh, remembering and, and, and thinking, thank you, God. Thank you, Air Force, for bringing me here. What an awesome place to live. Um, but there's one thing that I was not amazed by when I moved here. Any guesses? Yes, driving. Driving in Tucson is the worst. Hashtag the worst. Uh, back in Texas, I was used to these things. Um, you might have them here. They're, they're called highways um, that crossed through town and, and made it easier to get to places. I was used to um, aggressive but actually friendly drivers in Texas, and we all kind of worked together to move as quickly as possible to get to where we wanted to go to. Um, I remember smooth roads that were promptly taken care of if there were any potholes or any other kind of issues. Um, and sure, there's construction. Everywhere has construction. Um, but, but there, construction made sense. The word, world work that they were doing actually helped and benefited the people. But Tucson is nothing like driving back in Texas. That's my motherland. Some of our Texas people know what I'm talking about. It's amazing. Um, yes, we have a highway, but it goes around town and not through town. Um, it takes at least 15 minutes to get anywhere in Tucson. Um, people don't drive aggressively, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it means that you get stuck behind people who are okay driving 10 miles per hour under the speed limit, right? Uh, the roads themselves, what in the world? I have never had so many tire repairs in my life. Um, 
And don't even get me started on the road construction. Um, most of them don't even make sense. I'm talking to you, West Grant, U-turn onlys, no left turns. What in the world? Um, and, and they take forever to complete, right? Broadway, I don't know how long Broadway's been going on, but it's taken forever. Um, and even if you love Tucson, and I, and I love Tucson, um, but you know that driving here is subpar. Um, and one of the things that you've probably encountered while driving in Tucson are detours, right? Detours, roads closed because of construction or an accident, because of a U of A game, because of the 4th Avenue Street Fair, because of Tour de Tucson, because of the annual AIDS walk, because of the, the all of these things that Tucson does. Um, and, and there are many reasons why we're forced to take detours sometimes. Um, and while detours are frustrating, they, they make it harder to get to where you want to go, at least they get you to where you want to go for the most part. Um, you're not just stuck, you're not just stranded. Um, you're not totally restricted from getting to where you want to go just because you have to take a detour. Um, and while Tucson road projects, they take a long time to complete, imagine if a road project took 10 years to complete. Imagine 20 years or 30 years, right? You would be so tired of detours while you're waiting for that bulldozer to finally pull over so you can get by. You'd just be dreaming of the day. When the roads were open and cleared, no detours, no construction, no blockades, just smooth, quick, and easy driving, all right? But once the road finally does open and, and the detours are all removed, it's going to be a good day. But one thing that you'll probably encounter is that you'll find yourself making turns and going directions that you used to just out of habit. Have you ever done that before? Where you're driving and then you like wake up, which is a scary thing, and you're like, why am I going this way? There are no more detours. Why didn't I take the better way, right? I don't have to take this detour anymore. Or maybe you're someone um, who doesn't like change and you just get used to it. You're like, ah, well, I don't need to go that way. I'll just, I'll just keep going the same way. It's not that bad. Okay, now imagine a road construction project that took almost 1,500 years to complete. Imagine thousands of people driving the same route, the same detour for 1,500 years because there was no other way. Um, the, the quickest way was blocked for construction. But then the road work, it all of a sudden came to an end and, and opened up to benefit everybody. Uh, you can probably imagine that, that some people, they took advantage of this new way, but you can also imagine some people out of habit, maybe out of custom, out of ritual, still taking the same detour route that they and their families did for 1,500 years. Now, this sounds very far-fetched, right? 1,500 years. And while it might seem like a stretch to relate this to the book of Hebrews, this isn't all that different um, from what many Jewish people experienced when they were told that the Messiah, Jesus, had come into the world and made a new way, a new path for them to experience the presence of God. And for some Christians today, even though God has made a, a straight and better way through Jesus to experience God, for many, they're still taking detours. They're still taking the, the long, cumbersome way instead of the straight and unobstructed way through Jesus to get to God. 
So we're going to look at that today. Um, we'll make more sense of that. Um, and we're going to try and identify, are we taking any unnecessary detours in our lives? Or are we boldly going to the throne of grace without any obstructions? All right. And so the title of today's message is No Detours. Amen. Can we pray? Let's ask God to just continue being with us. God, we thank you again that your son, Jesus, is Emmanuel. He is with us. And we pray that you would just send his spirit to enlighten us this morning, to open our eyes to your truths so that we can see the best way, the better way to experience you. God, I pray that as we go through this, you would just illuminate any areas of our lives where we've been maybe going the wrong way, or maybe we've been going the long way when we can just go right to you. God, would you make sense of this to us all? Um, help us to just truly understand what it is you're trying to speak in Hebrews. Um, and would you just lead and guide us this morning? We thank you. We love you. We say all of these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said a hearty amen. Amen. Okay. Um, so go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 9 if you haven't already. Um, we're going to try and get through all of Hebrews 9 this morning, all right? We're making progress, church family. Um, you might be thinking, well, Pastor Kai, are we going to be done with Hebrews by the new year? <laughs> not even close, not even close. Um, we still have a ways to go. Um, but in my opinion, the best of Hebrews is in the remaining chapters. Um, and actually, the, the first sermon that I ever preached here at CCA, um, when I was still the worship leader, before I even became the pastor, it came from Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. Um, the word pictures that the author uses are so great, and at least for me, they really helped me understand the freedom we have in Christ. And so Hebrews, especially the second half, is near and dear to my heart. Um, but let's start reading chapter 9, and we're going to read the first seven verses, and then we'll talk about it. If you haven't already, go ahead, do the work, open your Bible, physical, digital, whatever you have. Let's honor the word of God this morning um, and allow him to speak to us. All right, so here's verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. The preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. All right. So what is this passage talking about? Well, we, we started talking a little bit about this last week, and here the author describes in more detail um, tabernacle worship. 
Can you just say that? It's so fun to say tabernacle. Can you just say that word? Tabernacle, um, which was a tent, right? And, and the tabernacle is where the Levitical priesthood would perform their, their duties as man's representatives to God. They would make sacrifices for the sins of the people. They would do many other religious rituals so that the people could worship and experience the presence of God. Now, why the tabernacle? Why couldn't God just show himself to all people? Well, that's what God's desire was all along from the very beginning. When God created the world, created humans, his desire was to dwell with his creation, with people, without any restriction or obstacle. When we read the creation story in Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve, they did dwell with and live with and talk face to face with God. That was God's design and desire all along. But what happened? Sin happened. Adam and Eve, they felt like they didn't need God to satisfy their natural desire to know good from evil. And so they took acquiring that knowledge upon themselves. They ate the fruit. And this sin obstructed their connection, their path to God. And so before sin, imagine our connection with God like a straight and open road. And we have pictures for you today. First picture, okay? Imagine our connection with God being like this. No potholes, no bumps, no speed limits, just pure, unobstructed connection. Can you even imagine that? Being face-to-face -face with God. No obstructions, right? Just pure connection. But then sin became this massive obstacle that prevented humanity from having this perfect connection with God, as you see there. Right? But God wasn't happy about this. Um, it wasn't how he designed things, as we just said. So he promised at the very beginning, we see it in Genesis, that he would repair the road. He would make it new so that we could once again have that connection with him. But as we know from our own earthly experience, road construction projects can take a long time. And so God knew how he was going to repair the road. He knew what the finished project would look like. He had the plans prepared and set before him, but he also knew it was going to take a long time. Not because he was limited in his ability, but because of the problem of sin, it was so great that it was going to take a long time for humanity as a whole to realize that they still needed God. So God, he set his construction project in motion, but not wanting to be totally separated from his people and wanting to provide a, a path or connection and relationship while this construction project was underway, he prepared a detour. Next picture. And he said... If you follow this way, this path, this detour, and you adhere to the, the laws of this detour, then we can have connection and you can experience me. But God said, while this detour will lead you to me, it's not going to be as good as it was before in the garden. Right? So don't get comfortable with it. Don't get used to this. Because my construction project will eventually be complete and will allow for something better. And so when we read about the tabernacle, the, the Ten Commandments, the sacrifices, the, the religious rituals for cleansing, the, the Levitical priesthood, everything we just read in verses 1 through 7, what we're reading about 
is a detour. You see that? Right? It's a way to God, but it's not the way. Right? The way he originally intended for his creation. It's a temporary detour prepared by God for humanity until the final and better project is complete. Everybody tracking so far? And if you've never seen or visualized the layout of this tabernacle, um, this is what it looks like. I told you, we've got a lot of pictures today. And as you can see there, we've got the outer court represented by that, that white curtain. Um, and this is where all of God's people could come to worship. Right? All of them com could come. And this is where offerings and sacrifices took place. And then you can see there the, the inner court where only the priests could enter. And so not all people had this direct access to the inner court. It was like a road barrier, almost. Um, and this barrier between the outer court and the inner court, um, it was represented by a physical veil or a curtain. I want you to remember that. Physical veil or curtain, I'm going to bring it up later. Don't forget it, okay? Um, and here's what the inner court looked like. It was divided into two sections. And the first section, as we just read in Hebrews, was called the holy place. And it had the lampstand and the table of showbread, as well as the altar of incense. I mean, it was, it was uh, but then beyond that was the, the second section called the most holy place or the, the holy of holies. They were really good with names back then. Holy place, holy of holies. We'll just be redundant. Anyway, um, but the, the holy of, of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant rested. Right, remember, uh, Indiana Jones, the, the big box that melted people's faces, right? Um, that, that was there. Whether or not it melted faces, I don't know. Um, but it was this large golden box. And inside the box were artifacts that reminded Israel of their time in the wilderness. Um, probably the, the most important artifact were the, the stone tablets, right? The actual Ten Commandments that were inscribed by God. Um, and where all the priests were allowed to enter the holy place on a daily basis, only the high priest was allowed to enter the holy of holies. And he did this only once a year on the day of atonement, um, when he would give blood offering for the sins of all the people, including himself. And at that time, after that offering, God would manifest his presence, right, his glory over the Ark of the Covenant. And so only one man in all of Israel the high priest, for only one day of the year, after performing several cleansing rituals to be considered clean and holy, could enter into the Holy of Holies and experience the manifest presence of God. And even then, it wasn't the full presence, the full glory of God. And so think about this. Why am I saying all of this? Okay, do you think that the people were satisfied with this arrangement, the detour? I mean, I'm sure they were okay with it, right? Because some kind of connection with God is better than no connection at all. Right, but let me ask you this way. Are you satisfied by a detour when you happen upon one while driving? Have you ever gotten to a detour and said, oh, goody, I'm so glad I get to add 10 minutes to my commute this morning. No one has ever done that, right? Because get this, ready? Detours only remind you that there's something better that hasn't been complete yet. Detours only remind you that there is still a problem that hasn't been taken care of yet. Detours, listen, force you to go around a problem, but don't actually solve the problem. You see what I'm saying? 
And the author of Hebrews, he makes this point in verses 8 through 10. I want you to listen for the detour similarities as we read these together. He says in verse 8, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way, the path, the road into the holy place, which is the presence of God, is not yet opened. Access is blocked and restricted as long as the first section is still standing. He's saying as long as the detour is still in place, verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, according to this detour, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Saying the detour never solved the bigger internal issue of sin, which leads to a conscience played by guilt and shame. Verse 10, but the detour, it deals only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. He's saying the detour goes around the outside of the problem, but doesn't solve the inner problem. Continuing in verse 10, and this detour is imposed until the time of reformation. He's saying the detour is temporarily in place until the time the perfect path to God is complete. So all of this to say that the Old Testament way was just a detour. It was a detour. Not what God originally planned. While the detour was good for a time, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't what God truly wanted for humanity. It wasn't the kind of connection he wanted with us. And so while the detour was in place, God was working out his master plan of restoration. He even hints at this restoration all throughout the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm doing something new. Something new is coming. We saw it last week in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, saying new is coming, better is coming. The old will vanish away. Never let them forget that. And then enter Jesus, right? Jesus comes on the scene. And one of the things, if you remember from his life that he did that frustrated the religious leaders is he challenged the people's perspective of the law. He challenged their perspective of this detour, the tabernacle, the temple, all of that that was in place because he saw that they were becoming complacent and legalistic with it. And what they had done is they had elevated all of these symbols of the detour to a place of um, of. Uh, What's the word? I'm losing it. Uh, a sacred position, right? These symbols were elevated to sacred when these symbols were just supposed to point to something sacred, to what God was going to do and who he was going to send. And the thing that really enraged the religious leaders is when Jesus said he was going to tear down the temple, right? Which was the permanent form of the tabernacle. He said he was going to tear down the detour and provide something better. And you would think that the people would have been happy about this. But because they had grown complacent and so used to the detour, even though God said don't do that, almost 1,500 years of taking this detour, they couldn't imagine any other or better way. Okay, but remember when I talked about that, that veil acting as a barrier between the inner and outer courts, right? And it symbolized our limited and restricted access to God. Did you remember it like I asked you to? Good. Well, check this out. In Matthew, it says that when Jesus gave his final breath on the cross and died, 
the physical veil of the temple, which is the more permanent form of the tabernacle, it tore in two. And this was to show that the detour was being torn down just like Jesus said it would happen. And you would only tear down a detour if the roadwork was complete and the obstacles removed, right? Right? Well, let's keep reading. Hebrews 9, verse 11. It says this, But when Christ, our Jesus, appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So praise God, the detour has been rendered obsolete and useless, and the better path, the better road, the better way to God has been opened. Okay, now what about the obstacle of sin that we saw earlier? What's the point of opening the road if the obstacle is still in place? Has it been removed? Let's keep reading. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, here it is, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. The blood of animals could not forgive sin. But the blood of Jesus, our perfect spotless lamb of God, did take away sin. And as this verse says, it cleansed our conscience of guilt and shame because of sin. All right, so not only did Jesus tear down the detour and prepare the way back to God, but he also took away sin. Or if you skip down to verse 26, it says that Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Elsewhere in John, I believe it's John 1, 29, it says Jesus came to take away sin. Right? He cleared the path of obstruction. All right, so this new path isn't like a detour that goes around sin, doesn't go over sin and, and just remind you that it's still there, leaving you with a guilty conscience. No, this new path is free of sin because Jesus put it away, which means that we no longer have to have a conscience full of guilt and shame. Right, where the old detour only dealt with outward issues, the new way, the new covenant in Jesus deals with our inward issues, transformed hearts and minds like we talked about last week. Right, and the author finishes out chapter 9 in verse 28. And he says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. We're talking about Advent, right? And that's not just the first coming, it's the second coming of Jesus too. Will come again, appear a second time, not to deal with sin. Because what we just read is that sin has been dealt with. It's been put away at his first appearing. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so when Jesus comes, those who believe and are obedient to him won't have to worry about their sin because it's already been taken care of. Jesus will simply come to finally bring them into the full and glorious presence of God. Now, 
I didn't read a ton of verses. I realized that. I skipped over verses 15 through 27 to be exact. All right, so quickly I'm going to summarize those for you. Verses 15 through 22 are really cool. Some of my favorite imagery in the entire Bible because they talk about why the shedding of blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. And the author uses um, a living will and testament as an analogy. If someone makes a will before they die, that will only comes into effect when? When they die, right? And since Jesus came with a new and better covenant, which the Greek word for covenant there is the same as will, they're the same word, the only way for his new will to take effect is if he died. And so with his death, this, his new covenant, his new will, his new testament, that's what new testament means, came into effect. Right? But when we die, think about this, if you have a will, who's going to have to manage your will when you die? Somebody else, right? And we're just going to have to trust that they follow what it says. Well, get this, Jesus doesn't have to worry about that because he rose from the dead. And so he manages his own will, and he ensures that we receive all of the blessings and promises that he said would come through his new covenant, his will. Verse 15 says this, therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of his own will, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's amazing. That's actually what my first sermon here at CCA ever um, was preached on, was that one. Um, Then verses 23 through 28, they talk about the finality of Jesus' will and work on the cross. Where priests had to offer sacrifices on a regular daily basis, Jesus only had to offer himself once and for all. There's no need for the sacrifices anymore. AKA, there's no need for detours anymore. Right, to go roundabout ways to experience God and all that he has for us. All right. So when we put all of this together, what do detours and the new and better paths opening up so we can experience God, what does all of this have to do with the Jewish Christian audience that Hebrews was addressed to? Well, if you remember, to escape persecution from their fellow Jews, the Jewish Christians are being tempted to going back to the old ways. Right, to, to going back to practicing strict Judaism, right, to go back to the old way of doing things, going to temple, relying on the Levitical priesthood, following the sacrificial system and the religious rituals all over again. Right, they were tempted with taking detours again, even though the new and perfect way was opened up for them through Jesus. And what the author of Hebrews keeps saying over and over again, why would you go back to good when you can have better? Why would anyone take a detour when a better path, a better way is available to them? So that's the application for the Hebrews, and we can relate to that a little bit. But what about for us? Well, like we talked about last week, um, some of you were part of churches that taught shadows rather than substance. That's what we talked about last week. They taught old covenant rather than new covenant. They taught detours rather than the way of Jesus. Or maybe you weren't taught that in other churches that you went through, um, but you still might have this detour mentality in your mind. And you're still taking detours to get to God 
rather than with confidence drawing near and directly to his throne of grace like we read in Hebrews 4 verse 16. Right? And what that looks like is you're trying to do and act and behave a certain way in order to get to God. You're taking detours. And so how do you know if you're still taking detours in your walk with Jesus? Well, a detour looks like saying, um, I'll do better next time. I'll do better next time after you fall, after you sin. Right? And that's actually the, the old covenant law. Right? Because with the law, getting close to God meant you had to do something. Right? I'll do better next time so God will find me acceptable and I can be with him. You're taking detours. You know you're still taking a detour if you beat yourself up because of your sin. Right? And that's the old covenant way of sacrifice. If I beat myself up, if I sacrifice myself to self-ridicule and shame, maybe God will accept my sacrifice. And he won't be mad at me anymore. It's a, it's a detour. Some people take detours and they try to get to God and his good graces by making promises. I'll go to church more. I'll increase my religious activity. And with that, the modern church has just replaced the tabernacle, the detour. And what happens is, is you make these promises to do better, right? to go to church more. You beat yourself up. You take all of these detours to try and get to God, but it still leaves you with a guilty and shame-filled conscience, and you feel no closer to God. Better behavior, but a worse conscience. Right? Because, listen, remember, detours only remind you that there's something better. Detours only remind you that there's still a problem that hasn't been taken care of yet. Detours force you to go around the problem, but they don't actually solve the problem. And this is very much my story that I've lived. When I was deep in, in my own sin and addiction, trying to get close to God and to become a better person, I made all of the promises. Now, I beat myself up. I sure did. I increased my church activity, my, my religious rituals, but it did nothing to fix my inner problems. It just made me feel worse. It just made me have an even more guilty and shame-filled conscience. And maybe you've experienced this before in your own walk. But it was this passage that changed it all for me. When I read verse 14, go back up to verse 14. When I read this verse, it was like, what in the world? Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And I was like, you mean I don't have to have a guilty conscience all the time? You mean I don't have to feel like garbage trying to become a better person to serve God? And the truths of God and, and his grace and his mercy through his son Jesus, they just started to become more and more real and personal to me. And so after that, instead of focusing on what I could do to be whole and, and right standing with God, I focused on what Jesus had already done for me. Right? He fulfilled the law for me because he knew I couldn't. He became the sacrifice. He took the beatings so I don't have to anymore. He opened the path, the way to God, 
so I don't have to rely on religious structures and systems to get close to him. He took the guilt and shame of sin on the cross. We'll get to that verse later in Hebrews. And it took them to the grave once and for all. He put away sin like we just read for, for all time for me. And he purified my conscience. And so I no longer have to take detours to get to God. And listen, church family, it's the same for you if you put your trust and hope in Jesus. Listen, you don't have to live with an unclean conscience all the time. You don't, and this is going to sound hard to receive, you don't even have to feel guilty for the sins that you committed. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a minute. Right? You don't have to go roundabout detour ways to get to God. You don't have to suffer for your sins because Jesus already suffered and put away sin once and for all. And because of that, you can confidently draw near and directly to his throne of grace. And so practical, what does this look like? What we have to do on a daily basis is make sure we aren't taking detours anymore. And what I've learned that there are these signs that pop up in our lives, in our walks with Jesus, that show we're actually taking a detour rather than taking the direct path to Jesus. There are four of them. Um, and these are really simple. They won't take much explaining. And they all start with P's because pastors like to do that, okay? So the first sign that you're taking a detour um, is that you prosecute yourself. You prosecute yourself. Right? When you sin, you cast judgment and a guilty verdict. When you think of, of having a relationship with God or being used by God for his glory, you prosecute yourself and say, you're guilty. You're not worthy of that. God doesn't want you for that. You prosecute yourself. Uh, another sign that you're taking a detour is that you punish yourself. And when you sin, you're going back to that sacrificial system beating yourself up because you think, if I do that, if I beat myself up, then maybe God won't do it to me again. And maybe God will accept my sacrifice so that I can draw into his presence. He'll accept me. He'll forgive my sins for it. The third sign that you're taking a detour is that you're performing. You're performing. You're working really hard to behave and act a certain way to show at least outwardly that you're being that good Christian who follows all the rules. And you think, if I perform properly, then God will be pleased with me. The final sign that you're taking a detour is that you're procrastinating. Right? Detours take much longer to get to where you want to go, don't they? Right? You're procrastinating. And sometimes we take a long time to come to Jesus. We know we're struggling. We know we're having a hard time, but we don't immediately run to Jesus for help. We procrastinate. We try different things. We, we run to different things before running right to Jesus. So all of these signs, they act as these signposts in your walk with Jesus to show you that you're not actually walking the better way and you've taken a detour. And so what's the solution? It's really simple. Turn around. When you're driving down the wrong way, turn around. In biblical language, we call it repentance, right? And so stop prosecuting, stop punishing, stop performing, stop procrastinating, repent, and start, another P, praising Jesus. 
And this might sound like an oversimplification, but we do it so little. Praising Jesus. What do I mean? When you see that you're prosecuting yourself, stop and start praising Jesus. Because what we just read in Hebrews 9 verse 28 is that there's no more judgment for sin. Elsewhere we read that there's no condemnation for sin. So stop prosecuting, start praising. The prosecution has rested. The verdict is in. You are innocent and righteous because of the work of Jesus. Even when you sin, and it happens to all of us, God doesn't pass judgment on your sin because he's already taken it away. He's already put it away because of Jesus. So stop prosecuting and start praising Jesus for what he's done. When you see that you're punishing yourself, Stop and start praising Jesus for being the perfect and final sacrifice and taking the punishment on himself for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's as simple as saying, thank you for dying for the forgiveness of the sin I just committed. Instead of beating yourself up, instead of dwelling on sin, how about you turn to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And this is really hard to do. And this doesn't give you a license to sin, doesn't make sinning better. No, but the more you do it, the more you praise Jesus after you sin, the more he'll help you take your eyes off of sin and focus on him. And the more you focus on the glory and the splendor and the love of Jesus, the less you will sin in your lives. I firmly believe that. I've lived it for myself. When you see that you're performing, stop and start praising Jesus for doing and performing all that was required on your behalf so that you might be seen as righteous and holy before God. Listen, there's nothing you can do, no performance that will make God love you any more or any less because of Jesus right now, without the performance, without the sacrifice, without all these detours, he sees you as perfect, as righteous, as becoming perfect more and more every single day. And when you see that you're procrastinating, stop and start praising Jesus. Do not hesitate or wait to come to Jesus in your time of struggle and need. Hey, listen, there's no temple that you have to go through. There's no sacrifice you have to make. There's no ritual you have to perform, no detour you have to take, right? He has done everything for you, so stop procrastinating and go right to Jesus. And he welcomes you in that. He hears you. He sees you without all the show. And he says, welcome. Let me change you. Let me take care of you. And then, as you're praising Jesus, that's the last one. But as you're doing that, we should be determined to tear down the detours in our lives. And never build them back up again. Because what we just read through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? He already tore down the detour, right? The veil was, was torn in two. And so if we're taking a detour, it's because we've chosen to build it back up again, even though Jesus has already taken it away. And so what detours have you resurrected in your life that need to be torn down? And church family, let's commit to no detours, no more detours. Amen? Let me pray for you. Let's just bow our heads and let's just enter a time, into a time of receiving from God in this moment.
I've said a lot of different things this morning. But what is it that really stuck out to you? What did God reveal to you through his scriptures this morning? What detours did he highlight in your life that you're still taking but don't need to? What questions do you still have? Just take this opportunity to apply what we just talked about to your own life. Spirit, I believe that you're moving and you're working in this place. God, help us to move beyond emotions or even lack thereof and to even just see your truth for us this morning. Help us to see where we've taken detours. where we felt like we had to do and act and behave in order to be accepted by you. And help us to see the truth of the better way of you, Jesus, because you are the way. And Lord, I pray that that realization will humble us where we thought we can do better than Jesus. where our living or our sacrifice is somehow better than Jesus's, humble us, God, right now in the name of Jesus and help us to see, help us to turn from that pride and repent and to turn to praising you, Jesus. Move us to repentance, but also move us to praise this morning. God, I pray that you would begin to build in each one of us a habit of praise. Where we've had habits of sin, God, would you replace that with habits of praise this morning? We would look to you, Jesus, and elevate you and magnify you, Jesus, as bigger, as greater than anything we've done or could do. And we'd be overwhelmed by who you are, Jesus, and what you've done for us. church family, maybe you identify with one of those four detours in your own words, in your own prayers this, this morning, say, God, I'm tearing that down. And ask the Holy Spirit right now to fill you to walk the better way.
and trust that he will take care of you, that he will lead you and he'll guide you to better. And so God, we thank you that you're moving in this place, that you are transforming hearts and minds. You're working on the inside of us. And God, I pray that as you work on the inside of us, the outside would also be transformed. That we would lead lives of internal transformation so that the outward could also be transformed. As you design, as you uh, desire for us. And so God, we thank you for what you're doing in this place. Help us to hold on to it. Help us to not forget what you've spoken to us in this this moment. Lock it in our minds and let us not forget. So we thank you, God. We love you. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you are blessed by this episode and would like to help us create more content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus, would you consider giving a financial gift of any amount today? Whatever you give will go towards building the kingdom of God in the lives of people all over the world. Thank you for your support, and we pray many blessings over you. Thank you.